0: let's combine all this stuff together we've got a circle way up high that's the sun right it's a circle it's up high so it's powerful it's a circle so it's whole and balanced it gives off warmth which relates to feelings of life passion love rage all of that stuff uh it's also associated with knowledge wisdom truth as opposed to darkness which is the opposite of that stuff danger no, it's safety, it's comfort. I can see where I am. I see all the stuff around me. And all we got to do then from that point is personify it. And we've got a sun deity. No.
1: Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Thanks for joining. Uh, I want to get to the music first. Earlier, as we started the episode, you heard a clip from Ainsley. She's a Fort Worth artist that moved to Nashville, and I stumbled upon her just paying attention to what goes on in the Fort Worth scene, given my my ties with that music scene. And I, an earlier band, Polly Dogs, the Polly Dogs, they, they played with her, and then she took off and moved to Nashville, and... Uh, I'm, I'm, thank you for letting me use your song, Ainsley. I appreciate it. I really enjoy this tune. This is called For the Last Time. And if you look in the liner notes of the podcast, you'll find links to her iTunes and Spotify account. Check her out on Instagram at Ainsley Texas Music, A N S L E Y T X M U S I C. And if you hang out after the conversation, you'll hear the full track, uh, that single. So thanks a bunch. Today's conversation represents some healthy reading. the the culmination of some healthy reading. So Dr. Goodwin, who I'll introduce you to in a second, is the fellow that wrote a couple of books, uh, one of which I was going to read, and then we were going to talk. It's a book called The Neurobiology of the Gods. And then we had to reschedule our appointment, and so it gave me the opportunity to read a second book of his, Understanding Dreams and Other Spontaneous Images. Both of them are great, and they go together really well. They represent. I think the bookends of, uh, of a lot of work that he's been doing for the past eight or nine years and more on this subject, which is w- really subjectivity and how we come to know subjectivity from a deeper and more biological perspective. It, it means on some level that they can be on a spectrum of our experience and what we tend to do is reduce one to the other. We become either a, you know, somebody in the humanities or we become somebody in the sciences. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know about the conversation I had with Jeff Krepel about this duality that 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 really isn't so much of a of a dual uh, of a duality. It's it's more it's more we that do the splitting, as Jeff would say. So today's conversation I'm has has been uh, with me. Um, the books have been with me, and as a clinician, I, I look at dreams a lot and. I just want to throw this out there that, you know, your dreams aren't just some kind of phenomena that happens. And if you learn to pay attention to them in a particular way, it's as if they'll start to interact with you. And Eric's got a good reason for that. So I appreciate how he's got kind of both feet in different sides of the pond, you know, the kind of narrative, um, metaphor, symbol, um, aspect of what you would often find in literature, and then also the deeper, more scientific aspects that you would find in uh, the medical field, He's a medical doctor. So thanks, Eric, and uh, I look forward to more conversation. I want to introduce you to him real quick. I'm going to read parts of his bio. Dr. Goodwin received his undergraduate degree from Western Kentucky University in 1996, where he graduated summa cum laude. He received his master's degree in anatomy and neurobiology from Western Kentucky University in 2000, where he published two articles. In 2005, Dr. Goodwin received his medical degree from the University of Cincinnati. He completed his psychiatric residency at Wright State University in 2009, where he received a superior ranking in every category from academic and clinical evaluation covering residency training. Dr. Goodwin has post-residency in psychodynamic training, psychotherapy, and supervision, which is ongoing. Topics include psychodynamic methods, analytical psychology, dream analysis, and relationship between spirituality and psychology. He also has formal accredited postgraduate training in cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD. Presently, Dr. Goodwin is an instructor at the University of Louisville Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He supervises long-term psychotherapy for psychiatric residents, He's an instructor for medical students and residents. He provides clinical care and completes research and academic writing. And he's a fun guy to talk to. So thanks, Eric. What else? Uh, check out the information on the podcast at thesacredspeaks.com. Like the Facebook, Instagram, all the all the things. And um, uh, the the. Theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. Look them up at modernnationsmusic.com. What else? Just a comment, I think, on Eric's quote from earlier about the sun. You, you know, There's an old saying that comes to mind that, and I forget what rabbi said it, 15th or 16th century, that the God of the horses is a horse. So what... What we do as humans on some level is try to understand our lived experience from the perspective of our perceptual and sensory emotional systems, for lack of a better term. And we, we we somewhat have to operate in that system. And what that what that does though is it doesn't mean that it's a closed system. It just means that we only have limited a limited capacity to can explore that system and we keep pushing it further and further, you know, from physics to quantum mechanics and um, from you know fundamentalism to mysticism. We keep exploring it further um, and, and and yet we keep we also keep determining that it's a closed system. <laughs> so I, I think Jung did a really good job of saying I'm, I'm not a theologian I, I'm a I'm a psychiatrist or psychologist so, psychology was his domain, and I, I am in that tradition, I certainly agree with that, and I also know my limitations. So what, what I do think is that there are experiences that we have that point beyond our experience, and I I, I hope you remember that throughout this conversation, and I hope I do too, because <laughs> we are, we get caught by the, the, the concrete, the, the, the desires of the ego that happen to be very um, on some level uh, attempting to make things more concrete, to put, to put experience into the domain of that which is understandable. Um, which is why when we talk religion, we get into the ineffable. You know, the, the, the indiscernible, um, the mysterious those things that are beyond our, our comprehension. and So we can only know the... It's like, a, you know, there's something under the water because I see the bubbles, not because I know it's underwater. I just I see something that emanates from it. But I can't know what that is. It's unknowable. So thanks for being here. And uh, the, the podcast is... You know, lovingly is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a integrative practice here in Houston that my wife and I started, and we're growing. and Check it out at the Center for H-A-S.com. and uh, or and look it up on Instagram at the Center for H or Center for HAS. <laughs> I always feel so amorous when I do these things. I'm just so grateful to be able to do this. I have a blast doing this. And uh, if you joined along for the ride, thank you. It's It's been a fruitful and an incredible ride. <laughs> As I said before, it's worked. So thanks a lot. And, uh, and for now, we'll leave it there. Dr. Eric Goodwin, I, as I said earlier, I'm happy that I, I don't have to geek out while I'm on the air. I was telling you earlier about how much I've enjoyed reading your books. I'm so eager to jump into this, and I'm really thankful you arranged the time.
0: Uh, I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah. So let's um, let's kind of see where the spirit moves us. I, I got a list of, you know, it's, <laughs> I got like six pages of notes, man. So um, uh, okay. I, I'm I'm prepared to go off book or on book or wherever we need to go. All right. Um, the first thing I want to do is, of course, introduce you a bit to the listener and, and to myself. You know, I, I know you through your books, and so now this is kind of a different way to get to know you. Uh, I, I, here's my lobbed ball out there. I mean, I guess the the narrative is what put you in the position to write about all the stuff that you write about, and um, and why are you so interested in in dreams and psychotherapy?
0: Um, well, I've been interested in dreams ever since I was a kid and, uh, I always kind of pondered that, uh, what, what is it? And I had, a uh, uh, when I was a kid, I used to have those, those kind of dreams where you wake up and then you realize you're still dreaming and then you wake up again. And, you know, and that just boggled my mind. Um, and so fast forward a little while. And, uh, <laughs> when I got to, um, I did math and physics as an undergrad. Because <clears throat> uh, I really enjoyed that that side of uh, you know the sciences as exploring the most fundamental principles of the universe and all that sort of thing. But my interest in dreams stuck around. and uh, long story short, I wound up in uh, the med- medical field and um, I got very interested in uh, psychiatry, which is another thing that I had thought about as a kid. I remember telling my mom I want to be a psychiatrist, and she was like, "That's a lot of school <laughs> 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 okay, well, I, I didn't know any better. I was like <laughs> nine years old or something. Well, anyway, so I got interested in that. And um, the program that I was at in uh, Ohio was a very came from a very sort of staunch you know, Freudian kind of background, mm-hmm. very psychodynamic and all that. But um, I wasn't terribly thrilled with the way that they approached dream meaning. I thought it was neat, but it's like, it seems like there's more than just that. Uh, well, I started doing some reading on my own. I bumped into Young, and that's kind of where it all started. Um, I gobbled up a ton of uh, Young's writings, and uh, I remember my the 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 department chair there um, used to tease me about being interested in Young because I was like the only person he'd ever seen who was interested. <laughs> And uh, he used to tease me pretty, you know, with a kind of a sharp edge to it too, because, you know, that's the heretical view from his, uh, you know, background. Uh, I was sitting one time in his office and I had um, uh, Archetypes in the Collective Unconscious, uh, you know, the ninth volume. And uh, he said, Eric, if you're reading Jung, put it away. (laughs) And I'm like, "Uh, okay. (laughs) But he was just kidding, you know, he was just, you know, that kind of guy. Anyway, so I got really interested in that. And then, I, but I kept coming back to, okay, but how does this relate to medicine? How does this relate to the brain? All this new stuff about genetics, evolution. And Young was not able to, you know, address those questions because he wrote in the 40s, 50s, and, you know, all that, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And um, so I came across Anthony Stevens' work.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: which really started to get me going because he saw the connections. Um, Another author, John Huell, which you may have have read his work too. He was another pioneer in that field. So I got really interested in that. I did a ton of reading, uh, all of it independent. And by the time I was nearing the end of residency I had written the first draft of the neurobiology of the gods which was my first foray into the idea of how can I connect the idea of archetypes if possible is it possible to connect it to neuroscience um, and that book is kind of the answer to that uh, the first draft of it I you know I kind of wrapped it up but then it still took me a couple of years to get it published and um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but
1: there yeah, you go. Yeah, it does. It brings up plenty more, too. So um, sure. <laughs> w- would you introduce, because we're going to talk a lot about this conceptually, I think, but you know, Anthony Stevens is a signifier for a, a whole bundle of energy that we can begin to unravel. And I wonder if you mm. just talk a little bit about your exposure to maybe both those figures, John Huell and Anthony Stevens, and and what it was that uh, attracted you to those, those mm. ideas and how ha- uh, then, of course, we'll get into how you've extended that a bit because I really think you have.
0: Well, the thing about Jung is that he, when you, when I, in my experience of reading him was you go through pages and pages and pages of sidebars and all of these weird journeys into who knows what. And then, bam, he slams you over the head with something that's just so incredibly insightful and profound. You're like, man, I don't know how I got here, but that makes perfect <laughs> sense to me. <laughs>
1: what the fuck just happened? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but all the all the while, I'm kind of like asking myself, okay, this is really great, but how can I connect this to what we know now? Because this, you know, hardly anybody was talking about Jung uh, in, in the studies that I was going through at the time on neuroscience and genetics and all this stuff. But he made a lot of statements that it's lended themselves to comparing that you know uh, so Stevens is the one who put the pieces together initially for me and um, he was doing exactly that he was saying look Young was very prophetic he had all these things that were way ahead of his time uh, in his day the blank slate idea was really popular and you know his theory is ex- exactly the opposite of that there's all of this innate stuff that goes on and here's why I think that is and blah 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 you know so I read that and it just blew me away and I'm like, there's this stuff is great. And I think we can do way even more than this. Um, so uh, in that first book, you know, I I referenced Stevens quite a bit. And uh, along with many others, like George Hoganson, who's another uh, big figure in all of this for me. Um, but I really started to get going when there was um, the Young Foundation in New York. We're doing a day honoring Anthony Stevens, and they contacted him um, in his little refuge in uh, uh, Corfu, and said, "Hey, will you come out and do a speech for us?" And he's like, "No, I don't travel anymore. I'm just not I'm done with that. <laughs> you come to me or else forget it and And they said, "Okay, well, but do you have anybody who recommends you?" and um he he mentioned me. And so I, I had, had emailed him a couple of times before that, just saying hello. And uh, I was really blessed by that, you know, uh, that he thought of me there because that got everything going. He, they invited me to give the keynotes talk. Uh, I think you can still find it on YouTube. I look at it now and think of it as awful because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was many years ago, but well,
1: that's I, how it I guess some yeah.
0: people liked it because after that I got a lot of more, you know, in you know, interest and yeah. um so but i've i've continued on from that point to trying to in to compare the, the various sciences to young um kind of expanding out from
1: where well, he let, went where let's he let's tend to that a little bit because you said an idea that you tended to in the book that i think is important i share some of your experience i i I dove into eastern philosophy and Buddhism early on and then I got a degree in clinical psychology in a pretty behavioral program. And uh-huh. when I said to to some of them that I was going to do a PhD in Jungian studies, they said oh you're going backwards. You know, you're you're uh-huh. really messing up here. And at the time it was mindfulness and you know that um, was really of interest to me. And and so I really relate with that that kind of uh-huh. contempt that that kind of the it's it's weird because cause the empirical nature of Jung it, it really tends to be left out as we even said yeah. earlier before we started talking about the kind of religious and mystical aspects of Jung a lot yeah. of those forays into uh, you know mythology using you know names of gods from you know 2000 BC that have thirty consonants in there you <laughs> know you can't yeah, pronounce yeah. them. You know, when I read Jung, I think, holy shit, where's this guy going? This is wild. And then I have yeah. that, I, I share that experience. But, mm-hmm. but so because you and I kind of maybe come from similar orientations, at least from a Jungian lens, blank slate, the tabula rasa is what, what you had said. And I, and I think it's important, and you did, again, a good job in neurobiology, the gods, of tending to the evolution of... How how we think about behavior and our own evolution and our psychology, yeah. and and so would you could you tap on some of those ideas uh, a little bit and talk about how they influenced or informed or even limited whether we're talking about Freud or Jung or Skinner or Adler or or even post post Freudian theorists maybe we can tend to that for a few minutes.
0: Well, um, my. F- A couple of my first papers that I published were really full-scale assaults on the idea of this uh, blank slate. And although many theorists um, back when I was writing that uh, stuff in 2010, around that time frame, were denying that they were supporting this idea, their ideas like Gene Knox, for example, um, I don't know if you're familiar familiar with this first stuff. Yes. It was really functionally the same thing as a tabula rasa. Argument. It was saying that genome provides this very basic framework. It springboards development, and then, and then it kind of leaves the genome behind. It, they, they argue that it was uh, everything past you know birth is just epigenetic, which has become kind of a buzzword for uh, we don't have to worry about the genome anymore. And uh, the problem with that argument is that it is utterly wrong in pretty much every way. So. <laughs> uh the, the genome never never silences and it's it's there all the time at every step all the way up to death but the point of it is though that um i think that maybe the most important aspect of young's theory was bringing to the table the idea that um there is way more going on underneath the surface that we we inherit and uh, that has a tremendous influence on us as we develop, rather than the assumption that everything that is in there was put there by parents or culture, you know, and local historical events and all that stuff. Yes, that's important. Um, but, but there's all of this other stuff, this biology, this evolutionary history that's literally billions of years old. And Young uh, was, I think, maybe the only one to say and what's up with that, with that side of things, you know, like where, where is that and how does this influence what we do and think? So when he looks across the globe and he sees all these repeated patterns in mythology, that was where he kind of went with that. He said, well, that, the logical explanation is that we have an, in, an inherently human way of framing things and talking about things. For example, the divine child. Let's, let's just look at that, for example. Uh, you've got the story of a an infant who is of divine origin, but left in peril, uh, but through the various uh, adventures, they're able to show their divine nature by overcoming horrendous adversities, right? We got Moses, we've got uh, Shield Sheafing from the Beowulf poem, we've got, um, you know, Anakin Skywalker from the Star Wars trilogy, or from the Star Wars series. And so <clears throat> this is a, why do we have this story? that's told in lots of different ways, but has the same basic structure. And of course, young ones say, well, that's collective unconscious. But when I look at that, I'm like, okay, but can we say more than that? Can we say what the collective unconscious is doing in that? Uh, that what are the components of that process? And do we have evidence or do we have maybe data drawn from other fields that aren't even thinking about young that nevertheless speak to that question? And so that's kind of where I live, that interdisciplinary realm where I'm kind of looking around for anything that might have something to do with this. And it's a very tricky business to do that um, because a lot of times the data is drawn in a different context and they're asking different questions. But it, I think if you're careful enough about it, and I try very hard to be, you can apply it and and cross the disciplinary barriers. That That's a, a big chunk of, of the work.
1: Yeah, and so before... Um, anybody out there gets pissed off about the bridging together of Moses and, uh, and Luke Skywalker, (laughs) I, I, which I, I hear as, well, wait a second. No, that actually positions it in a really important landscape. You know, the, the, uh, and, and, and I, I I think this, I almost want to pause where I'm going to ask because this gets us into the conversation about those structures the narrative structures and the links you know it's not just some culturally some cultural culturally passed on mode of thinking you know the way that you're talking about it is that there are really innate structures that predispose us to not only create but remember things in the way that we do yeah. So, so b- before we go down that road, because I'd, I'd really like to tend to that a lot because you spend so much time in that territory. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, and you, you kind of direct me here because if I'm thinking about moving through our conversation, there's a part of me that wants to go into the structure of the psyche, not to make any s- assumptions about kind of the listener or, or um, well, just not to make any assumptions that we, we really kind of need to tend to these words because back to that mystical root versus empirical root, um, you know, the words like archetype and collective unconscious bring with them baggage of the metaphysical. And uh-huh. one thing Jung talked about a lot was, like, look like, I, I'm not a theologian, I'm a, psych, I'm a, psych, a psychologist or psychiatrist, and, uh-huh. uh, and I th- what he's trying to say there is like, look, folks, I'm not trying to talk about what's beyond the beyond, but what we can actually uh-huh. observe and connect with in the here and now. And again, you, you, you do a good job of that, but I wonder if you could just speak to things like archetype and collective unconscious.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, so that, that's a loaded subject. Um, in, in the scholarly world uh, where I've spent a lot of time, uh, this dialogue has been going on for a long time. The last 10 years has been a lot of really interesting discussion about well, just what the hell is an archetype? And, you know, can we define it more concretely? And unfortunately, Jung sometimes is as much of a hindrance as he is a help because his ideas matured and developed over time. And there's a couple ways you can look at that. I mean, some people look at that and say, well, he was just confused and let's just throw up our hands in despair and say to heck with it. But I'd like to give him a little more credit than that. Mm -hmm. I think, really, that he started off with one way of looking at it and realized that you could keep going, and that's what he did. And so what started off as saying that, well, maybe maybe the archetype is this, uh, an organizing structure within the collective unconscious, and, well, what's that? So the collective unconscious would just be uh, all of the inherited biases and tendencies that we have as just as a part of our human you know species inheritance um or another way to put that would be below the ego consciousness you have the personal unconscious where the stuff that's happened to us but we repress but then under that is the stuff that's in the unconscious that we inherit that is part of our biology um and that uh, that's where the archetypes are for for young So yes, you can go from that to viewing archetypes as a principle of organization throughout the universe. And some people like to do that and kind of dive into that realm. Um, And whereas I don't see any problem with doing that, you gotta really be careful when you do stuff like that because you're gonna invoke uh, or you're gonna pull yourself into a debate that's outside of psychology. And if you're okay with that, great um one of the things that i find myself doing is bumping into the philosophical problem known as the mind body problem yes and if you and i had to do my homework on the philosophy of mind to really know the territory here where i think young fits um philosophers of mind are talking about the most fundamental substances of the of the universe so you can't go into that and say i'm going to use Young to tell me about how to answer that question. It works the other way. I need to figure out what I think the most sensible way of framing what is mind, what is matter, and then figure out where Young fits in there. Because that's like, it's not as fundamental of a question, Mm -hmm. the question of of how does the mind work. That's great, that's a fantastic question. What is the mind? That's a deeper question. So if you get that stuff all mixed up in your head, you're going to wind up where a lot of these folks are, I think. And using terms in a, ambiguous ways. So um, I guess one of the good, good ways to look at that would be you ask yourself, um, OK, so how does the how does this biology affect um How does biology create archetypes or where are archetypes located? Some people do that. They'll say, Well, it's in the genome or it's in the brain. Are we being precise about our categories when we say stuff like that? Oftentimes, no. So while it's a lot of work, (laughs) I've found it very fruitful to look into the philosophy of mind to see how those kind of questions are framed, but looking at it through a Jungian lens. And that my conclusion after doing that kind of stuff is that um, I think that Jung's view would have agreed mostly with a um, a view that would be something along the lines of neutral monism. I don't know if you know what that is.
1: A dual aspect theory is dual
0: aspect, a type of dual aspect theory. Neutral monism is a type of, of multi aspect theory. Um, and that's mainly through his conversations with Wolfgang Pauli. Sure. Uh, that, and it wasn't even me that came up with that observation. It was a physicist by the name of Harold Atmanspacher and his group mm-hmm. um, in Germany that had done the hard homework involved to make that connection. And I took it a step. I've taken it a step further myself by saying, okay, so let's fit Jung into that, and how would he answer these questions? So, uh, as you can see, you know, if you ask what is an archetype, there's a whole lot of stuff you got to do to figure out even what you're asking. Right. You know, um, so at the end of the day, if I don't want to get involved in all of that and go down that rabbit hole, (laughs) I just try to keep it simple and say, okay, what was the first thing that got him thinking about this stuff? It was cross-cultural symbols. So I'll take a look at those and then I'll ask myself, okay, where do those things come from? Why do we have the same types of stories told all over the world? Um, you know, so there's multiple answers to that question too, but Jung's answer was the collective unconscious. So if I just keep it simple on that level, I can, I can do quite a bit of work. Um, I'll give you an example. So let's take a look at the symbol of the dark forest. It's a a thing that pops up in all kinds of folktales all over the world, right? No matter what kind of culture you're coming from. Well, why is that? Well, maybe because somebody somewhere a long time ago told a story about a dark forest and that story just was so great that it spread all over the globe. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> that it that takes so much work to try to prove something that crazy. Rather, it's independent invention. But why would that image be recurrent or you know, cross-culturally emergent? I think its the answer is really pretty simple in that light, we always equate with knowledge because of our physiology. So it's in our metaphors, it's in our symbolism, for the very simple reason that we are diurnal mammals and we obtain information from the environment through visual stimulus most of the time. Therefore, if we're in an environment that's a low light conditions, there's a whole lot of unknown in that environment, so every one of us grows up with that, um, that connection. We don't need it to be taught to us that darkness equals the unknown. We teach ourselves that. It's either inborn and in that the idea was just there no matter what we do, or we learn it very quickly and early, and it's probably around toddlers that make these associations. So then from that point on, the connection darkness equals the unknown or light equals knowledge can find its way in all sorts of symbols, as it also very much does. Uh, combine that with another one, which would be a natural environment versus an artificial environment. So um, I go over some of this in the neurobiology of the gods, but there does seem to be a very strong and a tendency to divide up the world into those two types of things. Children do it spontaneously without needing to be taught. And I think that implies to environments. So now we've got a, a dark place that is not uh, artificial, and it's very dense. So you got a dark forest and that by itself, fine. But the symbolism of it is in, is embedded in the imagery. so. The dark forest becomes a symbol of wildness, of, of the of the unknown, of danger, because the unknown that tags very quickly into the that was which is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Okay, in humans. Now, if you asked rats, they would tell you that light equals danger, right? right. Because that triggers their anxiety when there there's a lot of light around. Why? Well, predators will eat them. Cats, whatever, birds. And so they would have probably the opposite symbolic association that we do. Uh, But we're not rats. We're humans, most of us anyway. (laughs) So then we create these images that all that stuff is tied into the imagery just by the pure nature of our biological situatedness in the world. So I think when you look at it that way, it's not that hard to understand how a an image could, how we could have a tendency to form a, an image, and that that fact would lead to the same kind of story being told all over the world, we're using the same kind of symbolism.
1: Well, and I guess you would, and and if you're living in an area where there are caves and no trees, that would be the image, you know, versus the That would forest. be the image, right? right. Because
0: it's still dark, it's still not artificial. And it's still potentially dangerous because you don't know what's in there. So the dark cave, the underwater, right? Right. That that adds another dimension because we don't breathe uh, water. We breathe air. So then, and then that's, I mean, I just think that that stuff is embedded and it's so deep. It seems obvious, but there's no reason that it should be that way, really, except for the fact that we are all members of the exact same species. And so I think it's very easy to take it for granted and think, well, somebody must have stuck it in there when it doesn't need, that doesn't need to happen. I don't need to be taught by my elders that the sun is round. I could just look at it. Wow, there it is, it's round. Voila, now I have something that's in my head that I taught myself, but it's not cultural information. It's self-taught information. So I think a ton of that stuff can go, we can tag that as a big part of uh, what we call archetypal images.
1: Well, and to add on to this
2: associations sorry, Compassion. continue that
1: yeah, um to add on to that, as we're talking about this structure of this kind of really misunderstood idea of collective unconscious because <laughs> we and this is not to say you you shouldn't or can't do that because it does invoke the metaphysical, and mm-hmm. it it you know as soon as this conversation kind of goes online, people start to push up against it as if it's a materialist okay conversation an for that. yeah
0: <laughs> because i really am very sympathetic to that view okay but and so i've run into this many times myself and i i almost go across the edge in neurobiology that the gods by saying that archetypal archetypal images are just this or that almost i tried very hard to ride that line of explanation but not hard reduction right since then i've become a little bit more sophisticated in my thinking and i've recognized where where the the water gets gets muddy and how to avoid that pitfall because i don't want to do that either i don't want to try to you know say everything is nothing but molecules bouncing around Uh, and i want to be able to retain the mystery that is in fact there about this stuff and there's two ways that i do that So, the first way is I understand that there's different kinds of reduction in in scientific explanation. So, you've got what they call a hard reduction, which is to say that some system or another is nothing but X. There's nothing over and above whatever. So, a good example of that would be the motion of the stars is, in fact, nothing but the set of Newtonian equations. Now, in fact, it's actually more than that, but in the realm that it was developed, it really does reduce down to that very nicely. And there seems to be nothing over and above that until you get to quantum mechanics. And the well,
1: meaning meaning and that those, that. those, those movements can be predicted within time and space. And we can look at those That's and, right. and begin really to understand.
0: Anything else. Right. Okay. But you can't do that in complex dynamic systems because the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts in those situations. And I I've kind of touch on this in neurobiology the gods when I make the statement, which I've repeated many times now, that if you look take a look at a living human body, you can say, well, that is composed of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen molecules. That's great. But well, so is a dead human body, it has the same composition. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there's something different about one versus the other, right? It's kind of obvious. One's walking around and talking to you, and the other one's stone dead. So there's something over and above the composition of the thing. And uh, you get that when you're dealing with complex dynamic systems at far from equilibrium conditions, like human bodies or the psyche or any number of other natural systems, ecosystems, solar systems, etc. So does that mean that we should just throw our hands up in despair and say there's no way to explain any of it? No, that would be a mistake too. The tension of the opposites, to use Jungian terminology, can be held in the idea of a soft reduction or incomplete reduction, which is just saying, here are the organizing principles behind this phenomenon, but I recognize that the whole is still greater than that. I'm not trying to say that it's nothing but that. And that's what I'm trying to do with archetypal images. At the end of the day, the dark forest is the dark forest. The dream is its own interpretation. It has a meaning that can't really be expressed in words. Okay. And that's due to the nature of metaphors in general. And if you, this is another thing I did for neurobiology The gods was I dove into metaphor theory quite a bit. And in that corpus of work, it's, pretty easy to understand and recognize that um, even simple metaphors like the price of gas went up yesterday are, they have an ineffable core of meaning to them that you really can't explain except to use other metaphors, right? So even though I can kind of intuitively grasp the concept of light equals knowledge, the imagery really conveys more information than just me saying that because it contains the experience, it contains the qualia, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's how I tie in philosophy of mind. Philosophy of mind is essentially the same issue, where they're saying, can we, the physicalists of that crowd, say, we can reduce mind to matter. We can reduce everything that goes on in your mind as really just nothing but neurons firing in such and such a pattern. There are some very intelligent people that defend that position. I, however, side with those others that say here are problems A B C and D with that, and most of it boils down to the idea of you're reducing it in a, in a manner of a hard reduction, and you're leaving out the experiential and the holistic qualities of characters and uh, or of uh, experiences. That y- y- you know you're you're not justifying that reduction. You're not saying like so. The classic example there would be the Mary's uh, Mary the neuroscientist experiment where she's grown up her entire life in the black and white world, and she knows everything there's to know about the visual system and then walks outside the door and sees a red apple and all of a sudden she's got new information where the heck did that come from and her new information is the experience of redness and this at this at this stage, neuroscience has nothing to say about that kind of stuff. We can tell you all kinds of stuff about the experience the visual system and how it works but nowhere in the theory does it say why redness should appear the way it does rather than some other way or pain is another example as you you may have run across this we got pain fibers firing that equals an adverse stimulus blah 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 you can frame it whichever way you want but it feels a certain way why does it feel that way rather than some other way neuroscience can't seem to really answer that so that's where the mystery of it is that's where The archetypal images contain that stuff, and even though I may know bits and pieces about how it gets put together and why from evolution, from all these sciences, there's still a mystery to it that is left untouched. And that's, I think, where the mysticism comes from. And it probably has something to do with the limits of human knowledge, but it's really tough to get into that conversation without falling into the trap of saying, I know what the limits of human knowledge are. Well, how do you know that if it's beyond human knowledge? How do you know where you know? <laughs> so I, I try not—I try to avoid that whole thing, other than to just make vague references to it or to say, "I think there probably are limits, but I can't possibly know what they are because there's limits." Uh, mainly because I think the opposite assumption that there is no limit seems kind of implausible to me, and ego inflated probably. <laughs> So it's just a hint or a hunch on that level, but I think it's pretty solid. So I touched on 57,000 things there in that explanation.
1: Yeah, but that's but you've actually I just to a, as a reader of your books, you answered for my only, I mean, I, maybe not that. I, I don't want my main criticism of the first book mm-hmm. was this piece that that I'm so happy I was able to read the second book because they really go together so well. Is that I could I could tell I could I could tell where you were going and the refinement, the refinements yeah. that happened as a result of you really working this over and bringing it out into the public sphere and having these conversations and teaching these classes and then all of a sudden boom you, you you really answered for that and I could tell you were able to really make space for, um for that mystery and in in a way that was really tangible, and so it it. And I and I think back to what Jung was doing is, is well who in the hell is gonna say or expect that Jung in nineteen thirty um was the same Jung in nineteen fifty? Right. Or I mean your your books here, I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, they're eight years apart. That's right. That's a hell of a lot of time and, and, yeah. and thinking. And so um
0: and interaction with other scholars in the field that are highly intelligent absolutely, and able to feed back specific pieces and say, what about this? You know, this is where I got tripped up, like you were probably doing when you read it. You're like, I like where you're going, but what about this issue here? And I was not as aware of it as I am now. So you're absolutely right. I was able to deal with it much more clearly in the second book, in the Understanding Dreams.
1: But as people in, in, in education that are thirsty to be educated always, I, I think we oftentimes, we in the general populace, really mistake and miss out on that kind of realization—that hey, let's make some space for evolving ideas. You know the fluidity of movement. You know how things are going to change. And you did it. You really—I mean, you really did it—in the second. Um, you know, understanding dreams and spontaneous images um, to, to really conceptualize from the perspective of consciousness. I mean, you even let out in the first five pages talking about consciousness and yeah. um, the, the limitations of our understanding of consciousness and you know, how the, how many people are saying, gosh, can we reduce it to the neural correlates of consciousness? And, yeah, you know, neuroscientists say, well, look, I've got this image here from a, from a whatever scan. And mm-hmm. I, that lights up whenever that thing happens,
2: mm-hmm. f-
1: forgetting that, like, well, that thing that you're looking at is not that thing that's happening. And there are right. massive differences right. when it comes territory. to <laughs> yes, subjectivity. And, you know, mm-hmm. that. and so that, that's the stuff that I, and i- I really gotta hold myself accountable because there really is such a part of me that thrives in and struggles, and I like the anxiety being in a mysterious place yeah mm-hmm. and, and 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 as much of myself that tries to understand and conceptualize and i I still also really feel protective of maintaining one's allegiance with mystery while also trying to discover and understand what we can understand
0: yeah yeah i'm with you there i i love the challenge and uh i i always want to give the adversary as it were the respect yeah. that it deserves <laughs> yes. you know which the limits of knowledge whatever they might be um and uh, there is something i think i think beautiful about the fact that um that our conscious experiences of things like colors and sounds and all this kind of thing have this coherent nature that defy reducing down to A, B, and C. Uh, now, of course, one of the big questions is, well, where does that, that extra thing come from? You know, Or is that even the way, right way to frame it? And I don't know. <clears throat> but it does seem, well, actually, I have a lot of answers to that question, but... Uh, <laughs> We can go down that rabbit hole if you want. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that if we look at the, the quality or the quality of a conscious experience, the whole does seem to be greater than the parts in a way that cannot, we cannot really um, reduce it down. So <clears throat> either either, when you take these things and you put them together in just such a way, these new qualities pop up out of nowhere. Now that's one popular view, um, which has some objections out there to it. Or you can look at it the other way around and say the whole is actually primary. Now, if you make that maneuver, which I <clears throat> I think you can defend that, um, it's not a very super popular position, but what you wind up really with is cosmosychism. Yes. Uh, and that the entire universe has consciousness. Yeah. Now, whether or not is a single conscious entity like what we would call as God, is not. Um, it's not a necessary. Ca- uh, it's not a necessary conclusion from that, but it's certainly w- within reason. And there, therefore, then you have a way of logically <clears throat> concluding that there must be a God. I mean, that's some big, big stuff <laughs> coming from <laughs> the redness of an apple. Right. But, you know, I've seen the argument made and it's quite compelling.
1: I think it's extremely uh, compelling. And, yeah. and so this is the um, this is the argument that we hear a lot in Hindu traditions. You know, the um, the idea that we are almost like the the, the dream agents within God's dream, you know, mm-hmm. pa- participating in, you know, quote, God becoming conscious. Yeah. Yeah. And so and
0: that's the classic tradition of idealism. Yeah. Idealistic monism that the idea in the mind is actually the only primary substance and matter is a secondary derivative substance. Yes. Yeah. So then there's, there's defenders of that too.
1: Okay. That, yeah, that's a deep hole, Um which I like uh, a lot.
0: On that road, but we can if you want. Well, <laughs> I think,
1: I think we can actually get there through, um, through tending to this too, because if we, okay. if, if we kind of back up from the, that dark forest there, <laughs> um, <laughs> I Um I think, a couple of things to hit on. Um, I just want to tee this up real quick because I, I, I do want to get to this stuff, which is maybe four things. Um, the first being the, the kind of structure of the brain okay. and the the kind of evolution of those structures and how they, I don't want to say create, but that system itself interacts and may aid in uh, our understanding of consciousness or subjectivity. Okay. So mm-hmm. there's there's that piece. There's the seven systems that come as a result of that seeking, rage, panic, th- those things. Yeah. Um, then, of course, metaphor, and mm-hmm. how you tended to that. I think I really, really do want to get to that. And okay. and then also to get to some of these images you said earlier, the child, and mm-hmm. I think it would be important for us to get to whether it's you know the kind of the gendered um, figures that show up in dreams. Or, um, or animals settings and settings and maybe get there a bit. But I, I do think that looking at the brain and starting out at the most base level and then talking about how we experience those various levels subjectively would, would be a cool start.
0: Okay. Uh, well, if we're going to start at the most fundamental level, we got to start with the genome. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so, and that's kind of stuff I'm working on now uh trying to make sense of the concept of archetypal or ancestral memory um there is a way of looking at that from a genetic point of view where um the old okay so the first thing i want to say about genetics is that it is widely misunderstood how it works in the popular um, world and even among you know non-specialists in that there's this idea that you have a gene and it creates RNA and then RNA creates a protein and the protein creates function. And this is a one-way trip. And so if we say something is genetic, it means that the genome just sort of automatically goes on this program and creates X, Y, and Z, whatever developmental processes. Let,
1: let me jump in because I, I got to think for philosophy also. This is... This, If I I, this is creating the idea of determinism, yeah. Okay, I want to plant that seed. Okay, good. Yeah,
0: you're right. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna argue in a minute why that's wrong. (laughs) So, all right. So this is this what we used to call this the central dogma of genetics. Okay, this is back in the 90s though. We've learned way more about genetics since then. Um, So, when I get into debates or discussions with folks about what does the genome have to do with archetypes? The first thing I think people want to do is attack the, this idea. Are you saying that you know uh, the archetypes are in the genome, you know, uh, and I can tell you why that's wrong, because we already know that the genome interacts with X, Y, and Z, and the environment has all this influence, and all of this, there's all this epigenetic uh, processing going on, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, but you're using the word epigenetic wrong. Okay, and this is this is not just some random dude. Okay, I worked on the bench with gene, with genetic uh, material on cancer research as part of my master's. I was in the uh, you know laboratory in the trenches working with this stuff. So, uh, and then I followed it ever since then. And it's a very interesting story. And what happens is not that the genome has these programs that it just automatically spews out, but rather it has a whole array of genes that can be used in multiple different ways, depending on what the environment is doing. So that's what the the actual term epigenetic means. All it means is that the genome responds to different environmental uh, variables in different ways. No kidding, right? Every single cell in the whole body has the exact same genome in it. And yet some cells are heart cells and other cells are liver cells. So what's up with that? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, it's because the genome said, hey, I'm in the position in the embryo that is associated with me wanting to become a liver cell. So a cascade of events happen that modify how the genome is expressed. That's epigenetic modification. And voila, you wind up with a liver cell. It can go wrong in 105,000 different ways, but more often than not, you've got what we have. Um, so epigenetic modification of the genome doesn't mean that something isn't innate. In fact, the genome uses epigenetic modification to accomplish its ultimate functional ends. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. So, <clears throat> uh, the fact of epigenetic modification does not negate the idea of something or another being encoded in the genes, rather, Something or another being encoded in the genes means that by hook or by crook, whether epigenetic modification, whether it be learning, whether it be plasticity, I'm going to get this thing accomplished. So that's the difference between ultimate and proximate causes in development. Ultimate causes the genome, proximate causes whatever mechanism it happens to use. And the way I break this down to folks is, let's say, I used to use a Shakespearean metaphor for this, but a lot of people didn't get it. So (laughs) I went simpler. Like so we walk up to someone and shove them off a cliff, and they die, and a lawyer comes along and says, "You know, who caused this death?" There's two answers to that question. One of them is you caused it; you shoved them off a cliff. Oh no! Another person might come along and say, "No, that didn't kill them. It was that sudden stop at the end of the fall that killed them." Right? So that's the difference between ultimate and proximate causes. If I stab them in the head then I'm still the ultimate cause of their death, but the proximate mechanism is quite different. So does that mean that these two explanations are mutually contradictory? Of course not. They're complementary, and in fact, you need them both. I need to know who killed them and how they killed them in a court of law, right? So um, there's ways to connect this to to the philosophy of causality, but rather than get into all of that, we can just say that the genome has functional goals in mind And in some cases, it's very tenacious about how it accomplishes those things. One of a good example I use is um, bipedal locomotion. We all do it. How does it happen? Well, it doesn't happen like this. It doesn't happen where you've got genes that just automatically spew out you suddenly getting up one day and walking around. It does not work like that. There's learning involved. There's plasticity. There's... Epigenetic modification, there's all of this stuff, but those are all proximal mechanisms. And each person will get to that endpoint in a 50 billion different ways. There's a whole lot of learning involved in the process. But we can still say it's encoded in the genes, even though there's all this epigenetic stuff happening mm-hmm. in between. Okay. So when I hear scholars say everything is epigenetic or 95% of development is epigenetic, therefore we don't need to worry about the genome and evolution, I'm saying, yeah, the first half of your statement is correct and the second half is completely off base. So now that said, that said, there are sequences of the genome that we share with practically every animal out there that has a nervous system of any kind. Even down to the insect level, there are analogous structures that obviously split off from an early ancestor uh, for the, like you have the central nervous uh, complex, those genes that code for that stuff is very similar to that which codes for the basal ganglia and the midline subcortical structures in our brain and the brain of all mammals and all everything. So that part of the genome has been strongly conserved, and there's always a good reason for that. It's because evolution, I mean, look at it this way. of all species that have ever existed are extinct. Why is that? (laughs) Because uh, we're like the few in the proud that are left. That means that every single person has a genome that's been been filtered through many, 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 many generations. Only those things that are of utmost importance are going to make it through that many cuts, that many filters. So... Anything that's conserved that strongly is going to be something that's a candidate for collective and conscious material. Okay, so at the brain level, you have the basal ganglia. So you have the brain stem, the basal ganglia, which are the, the emotional, very really strongly mo- emotional uh, motivation centers of the brain. If you have damage there or if there's lesions there, you do not survive. So there aren't anybody. Out there, walking around with no basal ganglia, their absence is incompatible with life. Hmm. So that's the a commonality—the a commonality that we all share with that in our brain function. Above that is what we call the limbic system, and there's a little more flexibility in that, uh, and that seems to correlate with our more social activities. Um, and you asked about the. The, the affective centers of the brain, that's where all this action is happening. Um, and the, the brain's, the midline subcortical structures is what they call it. And uh, so all of the activity of things like our basic emotional stuff that the and his gang have come up with like uh, mm-hmm. seeking and rage and uh, all that fear, grief, et cetera. Those are correlated with the activities of those areas, and they are quite conserved across the species, and in fact, across species. So, within humans, they're all very similar. I
1: want I want to read it really quickly, just because uh, I want people panic, fear, rage, seeking, care, lust, and play. Yes, that's okay. Right. Just so just so people can kind of hang hang on to that a little bit. This is what and we're now, getting uh, at.
0: Way to look at. Yeah. So, just for clarity, then, when those centers. And they are each associated with a group of brain structures that I talk about in the book, Neurobiology of the Gods. <clears throat> when those are lighting up, this is according to not only neuroimaging studies, but direct stimulation studies, a certain type or mode of conscious experience is reported by the subject. Now, I can't say anything beyond that without getting into the philosophical yeah, questions. Yeah, absolutely. My, my problem. So I just avoid that completely. <laughs> <laughs> I did say it's correlate, all right? Correlate, that's all I got to say. And I'm safe, I'm safe. Um, however, it is very important and interesting to note that those regularities do exist. If those things light up, I have increased play activity or if you stimulate rage centers, people talk about feeling an intense anger, uh, being extremely suspicious of people. Uh, you know, even racist tendencies sometimes will get lit up when you zap those areas, right? So that would be the influence of culture and how it modifies, but does not create these emotional centers. Mm -hmm. That's an important distinction there too. Uh, And that's very common that we see this. So we got the basic structure and that experience modifies it. It doesn't create it, it modifies it. I'll give you another example of that. Facial expressions. Um, So people who are born blind can still, by touch, recognize what facial expressions mean what. That's pretty impressive to me.
1: Yeah.
0: Or another thing, another example would be people who are born blind uh, exhibit the same body posture in response to emotional events. So in other words, if they achieve a great victory of some kind, they'll stand up and expand and wave, you know, wave their arms around and they're basically enlarging their physical silhouette versus uh experiences of defeat they'll shrink down and they've never seen anybody do this so where does that come from must be either innate fully innate meaning requiring no learning or whatsoever or is something that's self-taught um to me i'm leaning towards the first but either one of those is a good candidate for Mm -hmm. something that's archetypal at least contributes to archetypal images so um The the end result or the moral of that story is that there's a ton of stuff in the psyche that is basically uh, coded for by the genome that er emerges as part of our normal biological development, but is then subsequently fine-tuned by experience. And the business about the facial expressions that I said earlier is that, uh, so those who are born blind will have the same facial expressions in response to the same emotions if they're happy they smile. They've never seen anybody smile. They just do it. Okay. But what they lack typically is a social context that helps them to say, okay, in this environment, I don't want to smile quite so big because then I'll look like a doofus.
2: Mm.
0: They don't have that. And so that's the only piece that's missing from an entire loss of one sensory modality that suggests a very strong level of innate um, drive towards in development. Okay so what was the third thing you want to get to
1: Well I I if we keep going up to use the metaphor you know mm-hmm. we're sitting in the limbic system and mm-hmm. you know this is some some aspect you know people hear about the reptilian brain and then yeah kind of mammalian brain you know we're moving into that direction right and, and let, to the let, let's yeah let's let's push up let's all
0: going. the way yeah So down the neocortex is the this is where we get these people who want to say that we have almost exactly the same thing as a blank slate because the neocortex certainly seems to behave that way. It doesn't have a whole lot of any direction. It seems to be, it seems to develop with the idea that I'm going to learn a ton of stuff and I'm going to respond to it. And the reason we know that is because the plasticity involved is extremely high. There are cases of people who had congenital um, hydrocephalus for example and um, they wound up with uh, at adulthood maybe 10 percent of the usual brain volume and they're normally so <laughs> how does that work well you can have a huge lesion in the neocortical region as long as it's not a big sudden one and the brain will adapt to it and so Those people, their neuroanatomy sure looks like it, unlike anybody else's, but they get the job done, right? They can still walk and talk and think and have normal IQ, you know, in some cases. They're rare, but there are, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter how rare it is, it shouldn't happen at all, right? If it's all dependent on that, right? But it, it isn't. So now that tells me two things. One is that the neocortex is highly flexible and plastic, okay? But what does that tell us about the idea of things being innate? It tells me two things: that whatever it is that the genome is trying to accomplish, it can accomplish even in the face of dire consequences or dire uh, obstacles in development. Huge, uh, huge fluid sac in the brain. You know, in some cases, it can adapt so well that it just as if it isn't even there. That's pretty impressive. So the proximate mechanisms, interesting as though they may be do not negate the fact that we have the genome that says, I really need to be able to walk and talk and do all these characteristically human things. And even though I got this big honking lesion in my brain, that is not going to stop me. I'm still going to accomplish what I need to accomplish. So there's so much extra uh, redundancy and overdetermination of these functional endpoints. That's what I get from those stories. That's, that's what I hear when I see that what other people sometimes look at is that culture determines everything mm. in the brain you know because it's so malleable so because a person who is born blind say will have one the part of their sensory region that normally processes visual information will begin to process auditory or tactile information instead well that's that's amazing but it's not so much the environment doing that it is sort of but I want to look at the other side of it and go, But well, look how the, the organism is responding to that. It's still getting the job done. It's still doing what it wants, it, it needs to accomplish, right? So that's the functional end point that the genome is obsessed with obtaining. So uh, those are good candidates for archetypal components. So things that create archetypal images, those developmental trajectories that are resistant to Uh, all sorts of calamities in development. Okay, so getting up to that level then, conscious awareness is typically associated with the frontal lobe. The other aspects of the cortex seem to process sensory information and um, to a high degree of refinement along many different pathways. And then that information is then fed to the frontal lobe where Uh, the activity of that area correlates with conscious awareness. Um, Now, some really interesting stuff about this is asking a very simple question, which is, what is it about the frontal lobe that associates with that characteristic? Why is that part of the brain necessary to be active in order for a person to report consciousness? Versus, say, the cerebellum. The cerebellum has more neurons in it. So shouldn't that be more possibly conscious aware? But if you remove a cerebellum, you don't remove consciousness. You can take the whole darn thing away. Now, granted, you're going to have a lot of coordination problems if you do that, but you'll still be aware. You remove the frontal lobe or you damage it with seizure activity or who knows what, conscious awareness goes away and you, people lapse into unconsciousness. So there's something about those networks and the way they're set up that lends itself to conscious awareness. Do you know what that is? What the network? Yeah. What characteristic of those networks lend itself to conscious correlation with conscious activity?
1: but well, I, I mean, I would assume that there's some kind of mechanism that holds it all together and that experiences the experiences.
0: Right. So the character you're right, and but even just looking at the characteristics of the neural networks themselves, what seems to support conscious awareness on whatever level is dense interactivity. Each, each element of those systems in the frontal cortex is finely attuned to what all the rest of them are doing on various levels. So in the cerebellum, we have a largely what we call a feed-forward system. You get information that comes in from the sensory uh, modalities, and then it processes it as it filters through the cerebellum, and then you get output. There's not a whole lot of feedback There's some, but nothing compared to what you get in the frontal lobe. In the frontal lobe, everything is connected to everything else. And that seems to be, for whatever reason, and we don't know why this is, but it does seem to be necessary to support conscious awareness. And the curious thing about those kinds of systems is that they function as a coherent whole. Just like consciousness, appears to us as a coherent whole. And in fact, I think it is a coherent whole. I'm not saying it appears as though it were. Now that is a philosophical statement, but we don't need to go down that road if we don't want to. Uh, right. Well, But bottom line is it's a, a system of dense interactivity that creates through its activity an emergent property. That would be a, a whole greater than the sum of any of the individual parts. And the top down activity of that whole dominates begins to dominate the behavior of the system as a whole rather than the behavior of the individual elements does that make sense
1: it does and, and I, but I, 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 and I feel like if we fold in certain literary devices here like the pantheon and polytheism, you know where the interaction you know the, the, these these God, and this is jumping into the gods, but where the pantheon of the gods, well, they're, a, go. they're a uni- the they're a unified whole because they all exist on Olympus, let's say from the Greek perspective, you know, okay. but each represents different perspectives and they have conflicts and they have thoughts and they have sex with each other and they have children and they have, you know, they all are interrelated and they also interact with humans. And so what it it seems to me is that if we, if we move into that lens, what, what's happening there is we're seeing from a narrative lens, these neurodevelopmental and biological aspects of human biological existence playing themselves out. So, so what I'm, I'm kind of moving in there too is a little bit of what you were getting at in Neurobiology of the Gods, I think, which is how these systems, these, these systems are interacting with each other and how we come to experience the experiences of those systems. Mm-hmm. And, and then what you got into in the second book, which is that there seems to be some kind of organizing principle that that is not just our, our conscious awareness, that holds those things together right. and even comments on and... Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Uh,
0: oh yeah. okay, so the invisible storyteller.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. Right. So um, I think a logical question might be, given all that we've talked about so far, is like where is that? Yeah. You know, and I would say uh, I'm afraid to even try to answer that question um, only because it, it, you're making an assumption when you if you ask something like that, like, well, you know, the knee jerk response would be, well, it's in the unconscious. OK, where's that? Well, it's in these limbic regions. And all. I don't think it's that simple. Because we we can see conscious and unconscious and we make those distinctions and all that stuff from within our own personal phenomenological field. So those things don't necessarily match up with particular brain regions. It may be a consequence of those brain regions behaving as a unit in a particular way. And I think that seems to be the case when it comes to this, what I'm calling the invisible storyteller. Uh, as more or less an, an analog to Jung's self-archetype. Right. Which is just, there's an organizing center of some kind within the psyche that may not be locatable in physical space. In the same sense, the consciousness isn't really easily done
2: mm-hmm.
0: because of that holistic quality of it and all that. Um, and I know, I know neuroscientists out there will, will start to get really uncomfortable with this kind of talk. But... <laughs> Some of them. I think they're getting better about this stuff, uh, because the opposite is to say, well, it's right here in this part of the brain, and then that's that's got a whole host of problems with it. But anyway, uh, anyway, so it's a behavioral or processual phenomenon that we're looking at this invisible storyteller business. It just means that not only is there a coherent organizing center of consciousness, but as that there seems to be one for the entire psyche, which is exactly what Young was saying. And only he wasn't looking at it from this point of view, because he didn't have that kind of stuff to look at. But I imagine he probably would have
1: loved to look at it. Well, and let's, let's link this up to dreams. Cause that was actually number, I forget three or four where, okay. where, you know, the significance of dreams and dream theory is it's been, it's run the gamut everybody from, it's just, you know, as we've heard like random firing of neurons and, yeah. you know, REM sleep and, it's not to be paid attention to it's it's kind of just an epiphenomenon of our um, our biology right. and and what what you're saying though by linking i think what you're what you're saying by linking the kind of narrative dimension of our meaning making experience and also the biological dimension of our you know our just material physical selves that mm-hmm. when those two things interact we see certain patterns in narrative that can be reflected and linked up to our biology and our yes. genetics so so by studying stories and myth and fairy tale and looking at patterns of those various kind of uh, ubiquitous phenomena that happen in every culture uh, since you know in our evolutionary lot in life all of a sudden we're marking on walls and talking around the fire and cooking and telling stories you know, since that's happened, there have been these patterned ways of communicating yeah. and coming to know deeper parts of ourselves. So the, we're, let, let's kind of reject the idea for a second that, um, I think we both would anyway, but let's reject the idea that, that there's rant, just random firings. I mean, that's a nothing right. but proposition. Mm-hmm. Where you- were, Worse
0: than that, actually, because to me, you have to justify a position like that. You'd have to say, here we have a system that is completely functionless and pointless and it still exists in the psyche for what reason nobody can say, if it's completely random, there's no reason, why on earth would this still be around? Now, that's not a that, 100% way of rejecting it because there are things that do seem to linger around like the appendix, although now they're starting to see that maybe that does actually have a function. But the point is that there's an awful lot of energy put into dreaming for it to be pointless that needs to be justified if you're going to try to defend that position i don't try to defend it because i think it's baloney right but that's just me but let me get let me go back to your question though about how do we look at this and understand dreams let me walk you through i think how this works so a minute like a few minutes ago or a while ago i talked about the sun okay so i think that not only do we have these universal emotional predispositions, you know, maybe things like uh, linking a particular body posture to an emotion is, is completely inborn, um, or facial expressions, since people can recognize them instantly, even if you're from another culture. Um, those things might be completely in, inborn predispositions. Okay. But on top of that, you also have to include stuff that we all teach ourselves as a part of growing up that has nothing to do with our culture. Because those things will show up everywhere too, right? Right. Okay, so like being able to look at the sun and say it's round, well, that's going to be one of those things. Those things that are universal. Maybe they're not innate. Maybe, you know. I mean, for all we know, the sun could be banana-shaped until we look at it. Mm -hmm. But now the cultural teaching that we may receive would be sufficient but not necessary. Mommy told me the sun was round, therefore it's round okay, that's great and now I know it and it's going to persist. Or I can just look at it and go, hey guys, the sun is round. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's an that's example of that. Now, but there's a whole slew of other stuff in here. Like the connection between light and knowledge, which I already talked about. But let's look at some other ones, like height. So increased height is going to automatically be, I think, naturally tend to associate with power, ideas of power.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Um, that would be very simple reason being that all of us, when we're developing, our minds are learning. We see that everybody who has power is taller than we are. That's just simple fact of existence. Maybe if we got smaller after we were born, it would be different, (laughs) but it doesn't work that way. So constraints of the physical universe play into this. All right. Okay. So what about some other things? Let's take a look at warmth or heat or fire those are automatically going to blink to uh, our emotional centers because uh, of rage and lust and, and really intense passion of any kind because all of those things raise our own body temperature. So it's going to be an unconscious link, but it'll be there. And nonetheless, whether or not we think it out, it does not take a unique poetic genius to say love is like fire, right? For it to spread all throughout the globe because of some brilliant. No, this is, it's a cliche because we all, make that connection automatically right right okay um heat and warmth also gets connected to ideas of love and connection and life for a similar reason that um cutting off the uh natural or blocking the neurotransmitters that are typically activated when we are in uh, trusting emotional relationships i.e the opiate receptors will often give you a sense of chill or cold. And in fact, our attachment systems evolved from our temperature regulation systems. So it's kind of baked in to that the way that functions. So we are naturally- Wait, Eric, primed...
1: hang on, say that again, because that, that's, that's something that's completely new to me. Our attachment oh, okay. system- it's, it's in the book. It is. Well, I, our, I missed love it. Love and
0: attachment, yeah. neural, uh, the part about love and grief, attachment and grief, there's a big chunk of that that evolved from our temperature regulation centers. Isn't that weird? So there's a a baked-in reason for us to automatically link attachment, connection, trust with warmth. Okay? So Hmm. um, now, then, as the last piece of this puzzle that I'm building here for you, consider the idea of personification. I talk about that a lot in Neurobiology of the Gods, how we have a natural inborn tendency to personify I was writing a paper on this, actually. My my granddaughter um, came to me that night as I was working on it and told me about her teddy bear needing to go nap. She was about a year and a half old. And nobody had ever taught her this game or any of that, but she had taken naps and had the blanket put on her. And so naturally the teddy bear needed that done. But that's, I mean, that's textbook personification, right? It's a hunk of material. It's not a person, but we naturally do that. We naturally personify our environment. Another thing she would do is uh, if she tripped over the table leg, she would swat at it and tell it no, right? As if the table had intended to knock her down. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we look at that and we think, how oh, that's cute. But at the same time, from a scientific point of view, it's really interesting that we do that. And it's it just a natural thing, a natural instinct to do, to do that. Okay, so let's tie all these things together, right? So, oh, no, there's one more piece. There's one more piece. The, connect, the idea that a circle uh, is related or easily connected to the ideas of wholeness and balance. So balance exists as a positive in the human system because of our kinesthetic sense that associates being balanced with rightness, with, with uh, you know, not falling over and bad things happening from that, So it's going to be a natural associative connection that we're going to make. It's just a part of our natural development. Anywhere you go, culture makes no difference. Circles are unique in that the shape is, is symmetrical in every single direction. So we know this from basic math. So if we're conjuring up ideas of wholeness and balance, a circle is a very quick and easy way to symbolize that metaphorically. Okay. So now let's combine all this stuff together. We've got... A circle, way up high, that's the sun, right? It's a circle. It's up high, so it's powerful. It's a circle, so it's whole and balanced. It gives off warmth, which relates to feelings of life, passion, love, rage, all of that stuff. Uh, It's also associated with knowledge, wisdom, truth, as opposed to darkness, which is the opposite of that stuff. Danger. No, it's safety. It's comfort. I can see where I am. I see all the stuff around me. Um, and all we got to do then from that point is personify it. And we've got a sun deity. Voila. A sun deity that contains a ton of, it's not just an empty metaphor. its It contains that which is sovereign, which is lord of wisdom or lady of wisdom and knowledge and life and warmth and hope and comfort and safety. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And all of these basic associative connections, I think, that we developed growing up as toddlers, probably, if it's not just flat out innate, uh, it does not make any difference what culture you're from. You're going to be able to make those quick and easy associations. Mm -hmm. And those ideas will naturally tend to coalesce into a sun deity, any culture you're at. So, boom, there's your explanation for why we have sun deities all over the world. And they all tend to be the same kinds of deities of the same kinds of stuff. Because we have a natural human way of interacting and experiencing the world. And we, as part of our species, like to create symbols of those things to help us understand them better. And therefore we have a ready-made symbol that we have a very strong tendency to create all around the world that varies in details, but doesn't have any different basic structure. And that, what I just said, is one of Jung's literal definitions for an archetypal image. Is something that we have a tendency to create that varies a lot, maybe in surface detail, but is identical in, in basic structure. Patterns. Yeah. And those are patterns that the human psyche has natural attractor points in mm. it. That's another term I've used in some of my writing. As To use a mathematical analogy, an attractor point is a point which a complex dynamic system has a tendency to move towards regardless of initial conditions and regardless of perturbations. It will actually resist perturbations and go back to that attractor state. And I think archetypes are probably those. If we look at the psyche in that manner, then things which the psyche tend to gravitate towards naturally are things that we should think of when we think of archetypes, assuming that has that it's an image, that it's actually a metaphor of something. If it's not a metaphor, I don't think it counts. And it has to have affect in it. Those are all things Jung required. So now all of this not ties into your last question about metaphor. What's up with that? Well, uh, in the world of cognitive linguistics, they recognize that people use metaphors to understand the world. And it's not something big, and it doesn't have to be a big flowery metaphor, like Shakespearean metaphor of some kind. It's embedded in, in our very everyday con- you know, uh, conversation. In fact, I just used one, because a metaphor cannot be embedded in a conversation. Right. Right? That's a metaphor. So what's up with that? Well, it's we use it because it helps us to take ideas that are vague or complicated or difficult to understand and map it in a metaphorical and somewhat mysterious way, to something concrete, visual, easy to understand. So all those things saying there's an entity out there that is responsible and is an organizing center for life and warmth and happiness and knowledge and sovereignty, and it's the sun. And people will look at that and go, yeah, that makes sense. The sun really kind of has all that stuff in a metaphorical way. So there you go. There he is, sun deity. (laughs) Right? So, um, you know, we can look throughout the the annals of religious history and say, look at all these goofy backward people worshiping the sun and be very dismissive and, you know, cynical about that. Or we can look at it from this point of view and say, oh, that's what they're doing. Maybe they didn't even realize that's what they were doing, but that's kind of what they were doing, is saying, I'm trying to understand this deeper mystery, but I'm using this concrete image to index that mystery to, mystery, to represent on a the symbolic level, what that is. And that's not so crazy. No, no, I so, think that's very logical really.
1: So then you're, this is what, I, I don't know why I think it's so important and why I think that studying Jungian psychology isn't going backwards. It, If anything, it helps us, get out of the spirit of the times and understand something that's really deeper and more mm-hmm. universal. So, but from a psychotherapeutic lens, these images, mm. these symbols, this is what we see in dreams. Yes. And would you, would you talk about how you attend to dreams and how reflecting on one's dreams may provide insight into deeper parts of oneself?
0: Okay. Um, before I get into that, I will say that uh, regarding your statement about whether it's moving forward or backward, uh, I do believe that it's going forward or else I wouldn't be in here doing this stuff, obviously. Um, but I I can say just from my own experience teaching psychiatric residents, they love this stuff. They love it. Most of them. I've got a few (laughs) skeptics.
1: That's okay. You know, that's
0: fine. That's totally fine. You know, you do you. But I'm going to provide the information and uh, for you so you know what it's there. And if you like it, great. If you don't, uh, move on, right? Just go down the CBT and the neurotransmitters and mm-hmm. you, know, you can Zoloft it up all you want. That's fine. But most of the folks that I teach really like this stuff. In fact, yesterday, I, <laughs> I was teaching my dream class to them. It's a one-semester long course using the textbook, uh, using the, my Understanding Dreams book as the textbook. Mm-hmm. And one of the residents came, kind of came after... We'd had a really, I thought it was a good session. And he said, Dr. Goodwin, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> I'm like, well, we should you phrased it a different way, but that's okay. I think I follow what you're saying. It's a metaphor, right? <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So to your question. Um, all right. So what I just did a minute ago with the sun God mm-hmm. is – saying that there's this repertoire of symbolic associations that I think we all naturally develop. If it's not just outright there because of rigid biological modules or whatever it is, even still, we're going to have a strong tendency to build these anyway, and they're going to be universal. So any person that walks into my office is going to have this repertoire of symbolic associations at their beck and call. Anytime they want to try to formulate a new symbolic image. Now, if we go through the massive ocean of dream science and empirical dream research, (laughs) uh, there are a few things that emerge from that sea as things that people seem to agree upon for the most part. And that one of them is that very few people believe that they're completely random. So we can get that out of the way. There's a whole lot of reasons why that doesn't make sense. Um, The biggest one is recurrent dreams. How do you explain that if they're completely random? Right. That's really tough. Anyway, um, outside of that, there's a strong sense of memory consolidation being a very important part of dreams. But what is memory consolidation really? Um, you can look at it from a kind of mechanical point of view, like people like to use the computer metaphor, which I absolutely detest, but let's you know, whatever. Uh, uh, another way of looking at memory consolidation is saying, okay, this day that I just went through, what was it really about? What is the most important thing I need to consolidate about that experience? Well, a really fantastic and easy way to do that is to wrap it all up in a metaphor. We do this all the time in our day-to-day language and thought, why would dreams be any different? Well, they're not. In fact, when people are dreaming, those the parts of the brain that love to light up when we're thinking in a more associative manner, are more active in the REM state than they are in the dream state than they are when we're in our day-to-day, everyday activities. So it makes sense to look at those even more strongly as symbolic something. Most likely, it's going to be what in the world is going on with you these days. So that's what I'm going to dream about. But it's not put together by the conscious ego or the dreamer, which, as I probably mentioned in the book, if that doesn't spook you out, it should, because right. you haven't thought about it enough otherwise. Because there's something else in there creating these narratives and using these symbols, and yeah, you're a player in it rather than the creator of it. <laughs> so, all right, so let's do so
1: that for a moment.
0: Let's <laughs> simmer on that
1: for a minute
0: <laughs> and, uh, and get back to the question, which is okay, then what is this dream that I'm having about? Now, I follow Jung here but i also try to explain why i think jung was right in this i'm not just sort of blindly following what he said i think that he was spot on and he said things like the dream is not a message from the unconscious it is a it is a symbolic statement of your current situation so even if you're dreaming about stuff that happened 10 years ago it's it's the it's about the stuff that's going on now that relates to that 10 years ago stuff um now if a dream pop the the difference between understanding dreams and other types of symbolism is that that very fundamental principle that the dreamer didn't cook it up so then whatever metaphors are in there the dreamer is not going to have much access to what they mean they're still metaphors but we got to work backwards to try and figure out what they are actually about that's where the work of dream interpretation comes from and that's why it can be very sticky Nevertheless, I don't think it's impossible. And one of the ways we can do this is by, again, the reason why looking at world symbolism is so helpful is because those give us clues as to what are those ready, ready-made ready associations, uh, what are they, and how might they co- coalesce into creating things like sun deities or whatever, dark forests. And if I already know that I have a couple of associations that are fundamental language, like darkness equals unknown or danger, uh, sometimes darkness equals um, uh, pregnant kind of pre-fertility or fertile chaos or things like that, too. So there's that aspect of it, too. It's, uh, and that, again, that still ties into our visual system, meaning that there are sometimes things around the corner that are unknown that develop into wonderful amazing powerful things so darkness is a great metaphor for that idea now if i have this fundamental language kind of worked out with all of these different associations i can help figure out what the particular person in front of me's dream is about and the example i give in the book is the talking bunny rabbit among others
2: Mm
0: -hmm. right so and i came at that um when a president come, came into one of my classes after I was finished and they said, Dr. Goodwin, you're the dream guy. What in the world is this dream about? This is one of my patients, right? And I went to one of the other professors and they said, well, maybe, And okay, so let me, for the audience here, the, the dreamer had this recurrent n- nightmare to her, She experienced this as a nightmare of a talking rabbit saying, I'm going to get you. And it chases her around her room until she crawls underneath her bed to hide from it. Then the bunny rabbit looks down under the bed and says, got you, and she wakes up. Not all that terrifying, really, but to her it was, so much that she would avoid going to sleep because she didn't want to have a dream because it was so disturbing to her. So I look at that, and I told the resident, I said, does your patient have an extremely rigid approach to life, have a difficult time with play, have a hard time uh, with creativity, and did they have a severe trauma in their childhood? And they said, How in the world did you know that? I said, Because I'm a Jedi. No, <laughs> <It's> because, <laughs> well, I am, but never mind.
1: Yeah, it's your mystic it's coming out. I can look at
0: that. I, I can look at that and say, Well, what is the bunny rabbit about? Globally, right? What is that imagery? So even if my patient doesn't know anything about the Japanese rabbit god, which they don't typically, It doesn't matter, because if it's recurrent enough, if it's something that shows up enough around the globe, then it's probably tied into one of those um, tendencies to create such and such of a symbol, right? What Jung was talking about as an archetype. So I don't have to be mystical and metaphysical and all that to explain how this happens. And I, I like to think that one of the reasons why people can sometimes connect with my work is because i do kind of take that veil off a little bit and say look you don't quite have to go down the road of mystical mm-hmm. to right. to see that this stuff is rational and logical you don't have to remove the mystical aspect either really um if you don't want to but at least it gives you something to work with you know for the thinking types in the crowd they really love that <laughs> uh oh sometimes i'll do a lecture and then we'll hit a break and then somebody will come up and say can we do some feeling type stuff now <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, absolutely absolutely we can balance in the forest is needed so anyway so the bunny rabbit was very commonly is still a symbol of fertility of playfulness of innocence of creativity and what is she doing she's running from it and what we do in our dreams is the same thing as what we're doing when we're awake because we don't know we're dreaming so the ego is behaving in the same pattern. So she's this dream is telling me, and a dream is telling her, trying to anyway. Uh, well, let me just back up a second. It's not really trying to tell her anything. It's just consolidating the memory and saying, this is your life right now. This is as if, using my dream hack. Yeah, It's as if you are always running away from a poor little silly bunny rabbit that just wants to play. Tag. And, and so from there, I said, this is a person who runs away from creativity. And, and the, the trauma part was just a, an educated guess. Why would somebody be, be that? Well, probably because she was punished for being a goofy kid. Sure. And it made her terrified. Of, and that's why she got into that pattern. And I was right about that. Um, in fact, the abuse was very severe.
1: And it should and the be. Other piece
0: of it, the other piece of it was it was a recurrent dream. So that actually is not an insignificant thing at all. In fact, she's having it for years and years and years. Means this is a very entrenched pattern that she's not been able to get outside of. Otherwise, she wouldn't still be having the dream.
1: So, and uh, looking at our time, I know we got to finish in a bit. Uh, I, okay. The to tie that though, it's 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 not the same as saying to somebody, "You're not playful or creative enough." It, no. it, I also think of like what happens when somebody takes LSD or has a powerful experience. You know, again, back to that meaning making mechanism it is an experience of something rather than some kind of uh uh elixir or some you know a prescription like right. it it sets you up in a completely different framework to be able to carry literally within you these images yeah. ideas affects dynamics relationships and and allow for them to work on you and so it just shining the light on that for somebody and saying you know what do you think this is you know and I don't know about, I know this happens to you, I imagine it's, you know, week after week, somebody says, I was really thinking about what you said, you know, this tiny little just, what might you think that is? Well, I, I carried that out and I carry that with me. And I think that that's, that is true. That, this, these are the ways that I, you know, I'm not playful. And this is what happened to me and this, how I, my exuberance was contained mm-hmm. and 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 um and ridiculed. and And that I think is such a powerful dimension of getting into the dream world with folks is that, you're, you're there's, not you're there's not a so book
0: much more to that than me just making a dry interpretation from on high in right. my, you know therapist chair it's too easy to dismiss that right you know, oh, yeah i guess my therapist thinks blah blah Ha ha ha! isn't that funny no no it's on a whole nother level when you break it down to this is what your dream may be talking about because they lived it yes they had that dream they lived it And so uh, uh, that the bunny rabbit now, I can also use therapeutically. I can say, maybe we should look at this from another point of view. What if we look at this dream from the bunny rabbit's point of view? What's the bunny rabbit thinking here? And it sounds like a wacky thing to do to some people. But most of my patients, when I propose that, get into it. They're like, okay, that sounds kind of weird, but I want to try that, right? And so they'll try it. And, of course, the goal is integration. That part, The bunny rabbit's a part of her. It's a part of her lived experience that she's disconnected with, which is why it's an animal rather than a person, and she's terrified of it and running away from it. It's like, so then what she's actually interacting with is the is the deity image there, but um, it doesn't require any sort of dogma or you know expression of faith or anything because she's saw the bloody thing right there in front yes. of her, right? So it's that lived experience that's so potent that I think is why people report. and and this is another result from uh, dream research um, in therapy, is that people who you explore dreams with feel like their therapy is more profound, right? So uh, one of the colleagues here, and I just, uh, this year will be coming out with a paper talking about teaching dream interpretation to uh, residents, psychiatric residents, and how, uh, why would we want to do that? And one of the reasons, there's a ton of reasons, and this is one of them, is that people, really appreciate when the therapist talks about their dreams with them they feel like the therapy is more profound and more meaningful and all this kind of stuff so we need to teach it and we really don't yeah we don't
1: well i'm glad we're finishing on integration because that that really is the goal and i think there's about 17 threads i want to pull on and propose (laughs) that you know maybe in about five months you and i do this again absolutely there's a lot of i mean you're doing such great work eric i'm Again, so grateful for the books you've written and what you continue to do in integrating these multidisciplinary perspectives, because I think that is, we're so specialized and uh, siloed that to, yeah. to, again, to take the model and say, well, it's actually an interconnected network, and there's something that holds all that together, and that's where the juice is. Yeah. You seem to be doing that, man, and I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan, and I'm going to keep reading.
0: Okay, great. Is,
1: is there anything left that you want to close on? You know, where people can reach you or anything like that.
0: Um, so my, um, I think my email is uh, is on the U of L University Louisville website. Good, uh, and I don't mind you sharing that with your listeners. Great. Um, I, I do try to, you know, I'm pretty busy, but I do try to answer questions, and I, I get great ones from um, oh, people God. that I give talks with and it doesn't matter what the background is you know don't feel intimidated by all the science stuff uh I, you know some of the greatest questions i get are from people from the arts and literature mm-hmm. and all that because Jung is definitely all over the place in that world right. too even more so than in mainstream psychology which is ridiculous but there it is young <laughs> lived on this in this liminal space between religion and science and art and all that. And he refused to move from that spot. And so a whole lot of people look at that and they, you know, they just don't get it. They don't understand don't know it. what to do with it. Yeah. They don't know what to do with it.
1: Well, really, thank you. Um, you've been generous with your time and, uh, I will look forward to uh, one of these days having a pint. Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> or two or two. <laughs> okay.